Today is called Christ the King Sunday. I'll say a little bit more about that in the sermon, but we have four scripture passages that are designated for this Sunday, and I'm going to be reading selected portions of each of them. It's probably, I'll skip around so much, it's probably best if you listen rather than try to follow. Uh, You may try, but... (laughs) First is from Jeremiah 23. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the lands where I have driven them. And I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. Then from the first chapter of Luke, um, beginning at verse 67 and forward. Then John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke this prophecy. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Then from the end of the Gospel of Luke, at the crucifixion of Christ. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And the people stood by watching, but the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. One of the criminals who were hanged there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And then from Colossians, the first chapter, It's called the Christ hymn. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. The peace of God, it is no peace, but strife closed in the sod. But let us pray for but one thing, the marvelous peace of God. Amen. I recently learned that the liturgical holiday we're celebrating today called Christ the King or Reign of Christ, R-E-I-G-N, Sunday, is a relatively recent addition to the ancient church calendar known as the lectionary. Christ the King Sunday was instituted by Pope Pius XI in 1925, less than 100 years ago. He instituted the day in response to the growing sentiments toward nationalism and secularism that emerged from the devastation of World War I. In a rare show of ecumenism, Protestants embraced this liturgical designation and added Christ the King to the church calendar every year as the final Sunday of the liturgical year before the new year begins with Advent. Thus, in our country, Christ the King nearly always falls on the Sunday before or after Thanksgiving, a time when we celebrate and give thanks for all the good we have received in this land. But Pius's encyclical points beyond the virtues of being grateful for one's own country. A few years earlier, in 1922, he had written, Patriotism, the stimulus of so many virtues and of so many noble acts of heroism when kept within the law of Christ, becomes an occasion for grave injustice when we forget that all people are members of the same great human family, that other nations have an equal right with us both to life and to prosperity, that it is never lawful or even wise to disassociate morality from the affairs of practical life that it is justice which exalteth a nation, but sin maketh nations miserable. Pius then added, as long as individuals and states refuse to submit to the rule of our Savior, there will be no really hopeful prospect of a lasting peace among nations. It is clear to me that as Americans and as citizens of the world, when we rise above the the tension of the immediate political partisanship and division we experience, 
that we do, in fact, have much to be thankful for. Across the world, there has been genuine and dramatic progress in terms of the number of people living in democratic societies, in terms of the life expectancy of people at birth, and in terms of the reduction of the percent of people who live in poverty or illiteracy or both. The numbers are virtually staggering. Yet as we look around us at the current state of the world, at least at what we imbibe from the sources of news to which we turn, we still yearn for much greater evidence of the peace of Christ. We still have Erdogan and Putin, Bashar al-Assad, Kim Jong-un, an ever-restless Iranian regime, threats from cyber warfare beyond most of our ability to comprehend, and a nervousness that even as students seeking freedom in Hong Kong today are casting votes in local elections, we hope that their hopes are not suppressed with violence. Closer to home, we find ourselves immersed in a culture in which ideas and opinions, hopes and dreams, anger and anxiety of citizens seems hardened into camps that change little. And where, if you listen to different media outlets, you wonder if such outlets are describing or commenting on the same events. In addition, too many of us show little or no restraint in giving free reign to the expression of our inner demons. Whether such expression is public or private, live or virtual, tied to facts or rooted in fiction, violent physically or verbally, or tied to our own bitterness and disappointment with life, which is often rooted in hard and tragic facts. In his column that appeared this morning in the Washington Post, George Will writes of an exhibit at New York's Museum of Jewish Heritage entitled Auschwitz, Not Long Ago, Not Far Away. Will says that in addition to the 1.3 million nearly all Jews who died in that one concentration camp, what also died at Auschwitz is, was, what is known as the Whig theory of history, which holds or held that there is an inevitable unfolding of history in the direction of expanding liberty under the law. Just as the Holocaust was not inevitable, says Will, neither is the triumph of the Enlightenment. History is not a ratchet that clicks one way. Today, Will continues, in several parts of the world, including on the dark, churned, and bloody ground of Central Europe, there are various forms of political regression. These are marked by a re recrudescence, only Will could use that word, I think it means a return of the blood and soil 
tribalism, of degenerate nationalism, accompanied by thinly veiled or not at all veiled anti-Semitism. Will concludes quoting Primo Levi, an Auschwitz survivor, it happened, therefore it can happen again. While within Christianity there are many of us who genuinely search for the peace of Christ beyond the way such peace can come into our individual hearts, there is little evidence of our nation or other nations coming anywhere close to embodying such peace. Yet on this 94th celebration of Christ the King Sunday, The four texts offered by the lectionary remind us and promise us of the ultimate reign and rule of God. Writing over 500 years before the birth of Christ, from a situation in which the people of Israel are living in exile under Babylonian rule, Jeremiah the prophet castigates his own leaders called shepherds of Israel who have used their power in unjust and abusive ways that have led to their nation's exile. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, Jeremiah rails. So great is the abuse and so unreformable the shepherds. Jeremiah promises that God is saying, I myself, I God will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the lands where I have driven them and I myself will bring them back to their fold and then they shall be fruitful and multiply. In his moment of despair and critique and Jeremiah, I heard a Jeopardy question or something the other day is the longest and most lamenting book in the Bible. It is a book of sadness and of heaviness and of critique and of being burdened by God. But in his moment of despair and critique, Jeremiah is reminded, and in turn he reminds us as his readers, of God's promise that down through the centuries, God ultimately reigns and rescues. It leads Jeremiah to return to the positive and time-tested language that he learned from the creation story in Genesis. Humanity, Jeremiah says, humanity shall ultimately be fruitful and multiply. In the second passage we read from the Gospel of Luke, Zechariah, the father of a newborn child who will grow up to become John the Baptist, hears the word of the Lord make a promise concerning the Messiah whose way Zechariah's son will prepare. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved 
and Israel will live in safety. Zechariah then concludes, by the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet on the way of peace. A leader who rules with wisdom, with justice, with righteousness. Later, near the end of the Gospel of Luke, the one whom Zechariah's son has proclaimed speaks his final words from the cross. Put to death partially for not being the kind of warrior king for which many of the people of God had hoped. The soldiers who carry out the crucifixion are casting lots for his clothing beneath the cross. Those who had sought his death taunt him. He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. Soldiers then join in the mocking. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Yet in these last and brutal moments of his life, Jesus provides a glimpse of just how different, how peculiar his reign and rule are. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And today you shall see me in paradise. And in the fourth and final text for today, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church he has founded at Colossae several decades after the death and resurrection of Christ, Paul inserts words of a hymn which link Christ's rule all the way back to creation and all the way forward into eternity and bear witness of how unique Christ's rule is. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created. He himself is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things. Whether on earth or in heaven. By making peace through the blood of the cross. It is a grand hymn of wonderful promise. Eloquent Elusive, but true. I'll close with a brief word that has helped me come to understand how the birth of an infant to an impoverished couple in a stable out back behind an inn which has no room in which they can sleep or even give birth, how this infant can indeed become Christ the King. It's a phrase one of my teachers, 
theologian Christopher Morris, now well into his 80s, developed over the course of his teaching and writing career. The reign of Christ, he said, is at hand, but it is not in hand. The reign of Christ, the rule of Christ, so beautiful, so hopeful, so peaceful, so inclusive, so forgiving, so just, so all-encompassing of all of our experiences, of all of our joys and sadnesses, This reign of Christ is near, but not yet fully here. At hand, but not in hand. But Morse adds, we are on hand for this reign. We prepare for it. We study and meditate on it day and night. We live wherever possible or even wherever stretched as if it were already here. Sometimes even at risk to our reputations. Sometimes even at risk to our friendships. Sometimes even at risk to our family relationships. Sometimes even at risk to our work or our careers or our material advancement sometimes even at risk to our lives. And in those rare moments where this reign of Christ makes incursions into our lives or our world and in which we recognize those incursions, we give ourselves over to it. Even though in the moment of our giving, we recognize that even then we've only seen a smidgen of what it will be like when all of us have the reign of Christ firmly in hand. One of the great hymns we sing next year during Advent and Christmas is Joy to the World. Most of us know all of the verses 75% of us know the second verse, 50% of us know the third verse, and about 5% of us know the last verse. I'm in that five. But listen to the last verse. He rules the world with grace, with truth and grace, and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness makes the nations prove, embody, have, live out the wonders of his love, the wonders of his love, the wonders of his love. On Christ the King, we remember that Christ rules in such a way that makes Even the nations prove the wonders of his love. Amen.